Hey, Post Shifters, this is my interview with Dave Mitten a couple of weeks ago in San Antonio for the San Antonio Clock Talk Conference. I had a blast down there. I'm really grateful that I get to go to these shows, hang out with people that I really look up to and get to interview them. Uh, so I hope you enjoyed the interview. It's a pretty long one. I apologize about that. We had to move locations halfway through. Um, but when you start talking to Dave, you really understand how... You can get away, time gets away from you when he starts talking about uh, the Toronto cocktail scene and everything else. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. Sound quality is getting better, I promise. I got new equipment and uh, slowly but surely it's going to get better. So I appreciate everybody's support while I'm getting through it. And uh, I hope you enjoy this episode. Cheers. This is the Post Shift Podcast, a broad look at the hospitality industry. But um, I suppose we should start and... Yes, sir. You want to introduce yourself to start? Sure thing. Um, Dave Mitten, uh, global brand ambassador for Hiram Walker's Canadian Whiskies. Nice. Or I should say, I'm Dave Mitten, global ambassador for Corby Spirit Wines Canadian Whiskies. <laughs> is that your official title? Out of Hiram Walker. Yeah. So, is that your official title? My official title now, to be honest, is it's a global ambassador for Canadian, uh, international Canadian spirits. Okay. So I'll be. I will be the guy that clearly my main thing is Canadian whiskey yeah. internationally, but Corby owns some other products like yep. Gava Chin or Chick Chock Rum, Lamb's Rum. If anything is needed outside of Canada on those brands, I will but your focus look after is the that. My focus is on whiskeys, absolutely. So, for now. I think we should go back all the way because I think that'll be a way to look too far an episode. You started bartending in Halifax? I started bartending. Um, actually, I started bartending in, I started in the bar industry in Los Angeles, California. Oh, that's right. You were a music- musician? I was a actor, wannabe actor, going to school, classes, uh, doing whatever I could as an illegal alien, working in, as a bathroom attendant, bar back, bus boy. Uh, found my way into a pretty decent position, getting paid by the hour, uh, working the door at a club in Beverly Hills, uh, which was great. It was fine. Um, I was actually under the age of 21. I was 19 and 20 when I lived there. Uh, you know, being a legal alien, no one really asked for my ID anyway. Um and fell in love with the industry in the sense that it was just very exciting. And when I was barbacking, I was watching the bartenders yeah. and wanted a part of that action. What made you go to LA though? Being a small town kid from uh, Riverview, New Brunswick, or Albert County, New Brunswick. Uh, been working in theater for a few years. Oh, so it was the, the full on, like, it was a 1990s romantic. I need to go to LA and be a big star. It was actually my parents' suggestion because I had been working in theater for a few years and volunteering in theater, like just anything I could do to work in theater and film and television, which was very small back yeah. then. And they suggested, like, if you're going to do this, you might as well go for it and go either to Toronto, New York, LA. And. At that time, I had been traveling, uh, had an old Volkswagen van with some buddies, and we had spent months driving across Canada and the U.S. and into Mexico, and just trying to, you know, just little backpacking bums, really, but trying to explore our own country in North America. And I ended up staying in L.A. for a few days with them, 
and I fell in love with LA at that time. It was coming from the smallest town in Canada, probably. It was very overwhelming. I didn't know a soul there. Uh, gritty, grimy, uh, almost I feel, dangerous. I feel, I feel like there should be a montage. There has to be like a, a Dave Mitten montage with someone playing David Mitten coming from like small town. I don't know if anyone would but <laughs> Did you um, ever actually get any roles? Like acting roles? That got filmed? You know, yeah. Is there videos out there that you have? Uh, probably some, but I don't want to talk about those much. Well, I mean, got some great. Started off doing lots of extra work, obviously, yeah. some pretty big movies, which is funny. Sometimes you can see me, sometimes you can't. Um, I think the coolest accomplishment I had, but didn't come to fruition because it sounds so made up. I landed a small speaking line, and it was a Harrison Ford movie, and the line was with Liam Neeson. It was just a little interaction yeah. with him. Uh, and it was, I was in. I had an accident, unfortunately, where I had to uh, off. I had to back away from it, and I ended up doing some extra work for them later. And that was very frustrating to me. I'm like, oh my god, I had a oh, you broke my heart. I was with, just like, I have to find this scene now. Uh, no, no, no. I wish it existed. Um, long story short, I stayed in LA for a while, but um, I ended up falling more in love with traveling in kind of the restaurant scene yep. it sounds funny and it seemed more realistic at the time than becoming a, a, a successful actor uh, so I kind of rolled with it um, I went traveling for a few years overseas found myself working by some restaurants obviously made my way really fell in love with the industry um, I think my first real bar gig I was doing a friend of favor in Halifax at the Velvet Olive, yeah. which used to be quite a well-known cocktail bar in the late 90s, if there were many yeah. well-known cocktail bars in the late 90s in Canada. Uh, Red, blue, and green, the same color cocktail. Well, I was going to say, yeah. it, it, it made the top five list of cocktail bars. I think there were seven cocktail yeah. bars in Canada in 1997. <laughs> well, it's like, pretty good. Um, did a favor for a friend, and I, I was working the door, head up. I headed up security for him at this little cocktail lounge, so it was pretty easy. But a position came open to get behind the bar. Long story short, I had a shot, made it. Um, I just fell in love with that family, that the family that was there, the, the people that I learned from about bartending. Gordon Hanna uh, was the man who taught me everything I knew back then about yeah. bartending. We're still dear friends now. He runs the Drake Hotel bar programs. Uh, fell in love with the craft. Fell in love with it. Uh, kept traveling a little bit afterwards. Went to Australia, New Zealand, and Asia for a while. Uh, and ended up... Um, what did I end up after that? Timelines, timelines. Oh, I ended up in, in Toronto, 2001. Okay. And funny enough, I went back to Toronto to kind of go back into the acting thing. And my cousin, Fern, she's the president of uh, ACTRA, and great connection to have, went back up. She got me set up with all these classes with great coaches. Spent the first year, it's fantastic, just really, not even exactly auditioning, I was just learning and owning the craft. Yeah. My friend Bradley Denton, who used to own the Velvet Olive yeah. in Halifax, 
uh, was in uh, Toronto at this point, and he came up with a genius idea that him and I would open a bar restaurant together. And I was a little unsure of it. Mind you, I was in my early 20s, yeah. too. You need to remember this. Uh, so I was uh, as worldly as I could get for somebody who was 24. Yeah. But uh, he convinced me, let's open a small little place. And at the time, I thought, this would be great. He's like, I'll just run a little tiny cocktail bar, get yeah. people to do it. I'll take acting classes. I'll, it's going to be perfect. Uh, you know, be great. I mean, live a magical life. I'll, I'll meet Julia Roberts when we're married. What can be? What can go wrong? Um, what bar was that one? That ended up being. Uh, it's too long of a story to get into, but it was. We ended up finding a space we wanted, and Brad brought me along and said, "Hey, I want you to see this other space that's not for lease or sale, but if it ever comes up, maybe someday we can take it over and make a buck." And it was this old butcher shop on Queen Street West, which Queen Street West at that time was not a place you even wanted to walk around at night. Where, I mean, in the last year, it's been voted one of the top neighborhoods in the world, apparently, by Esquire magazine, or Vogue magazine, voted it best neighborhood in North America. Oh, wow. But back then, you did not. You just didn't walk around in the evening. Yeah. And this was an old abandoned butcher shop from 1923. The family... Chahosky had run it for decades and decades, and the last family member passed away, and it was just empty. Um, I we were looking at it, just the character. Like, the sign was literally mm-hmm. from 1923 out front, Chahosky. Like, this would be great. Talked about it. We just walked away from it because it was released for 20 years, or it was, it was just empty for 20 yeah. years. Probably two days later, we were out looking at a space we were thinking of taking, and his wife called him and said, you need to get to Main Street West right now. I just drove by Chosky, and there's a police sign on the window. We're like, that's can't, she's got to be mistaken. Yeah. There's no way that's that much of a coincidence has happened. Sure enough, we drove over, four lease sign on the window. We called in, left a message. Met with the landlord a couple days later. Great guy, young guy. Owned, probably at that time, about 80 buildings on the street. Oh, wow. I know he owns he knew hundreds what he, he now. Knew, he knew what Queen Street West was going to turn He knew what it was going to be, exactly. And we got the space. We didn't know what we were getting into. We were so excited and just stupid. We took it right away. We signed everything, took it. And I remember talking to the landlord a few months later. We'd be coming close to him and friends and asked him. He said, listen, I'm sure a lot of people applied for this. And I think he said it was like 120 people in 24 hours applied wow. for the space. Because it was just a magical building. That, that, just that spot. Yeah. And he said right away he just like cut the fat and it was all the like Tim Hortons, McDonald's. Mm-hmm. He didn't want any corporations amazing thing about this man is you look at all the buildings he owns and it's all young designers young entrepreneurs retail stores yeah it's great so he likes to keep the neighborhood like that which is amazing he said to us he goes well he said you were the youngest applicants you had the least amount of experience and the least amount of money which is pretty much an oxymoron for any landlord or any real estate guy and he goes but you had the best idea out of 120 applicants it's amazing, fantastic. So we, our idea was we wanted to take the butcher shop from the 1920s because all the equipment was still there. Like the functioning walk-in cooler was from installed in 1923. Yeah. We had the brochure of it. The meat 
deli counter up front was installed in 1922 in the brochure. Yeah. We turned it into our champagne, like, you know, and yeah. meat area. It was great. When we took over the space, our idea was we were going to just do one floor, main floor, tiny cocktail lounge, dining room in the back, and uh, uh, live music venue. Kind of just dinner music while you're eating. And then we do the basement where the, the, the restrooms would be in storage. Took it over, signed the lease, realized a few weeks in, we were planning on changing the stairway to come down so somebody could rent the second and third floor, maybe as apartments or a business. We realized that if we put the stairs in, there would not be enough room to have bodies even walk through the front area, let alone put tables and chairs. Great oversight on some inexperienced 20-year-olds. So it came down to it, if we were going to do this and not, we could, we had a chance that we could have left it. The landlord was kind, but we were gung-ho, no, we need the space. So we signed another lease and redid it and took over the second and third floor. So now we had four floors that we had to essentially gut, strip back to the frame of 1898 when the building was built. It needed all new wiring, it needed new plumbing, it needed new insulation. That's a huge undertaking. The one, two, three, four sets of stairs had to be taken out and re-angled to be in today's requirements. Like, the basement had to be dug out two and a half feet. It took took two and a half years to rebuild. From the time we took it over until the day we opened, it was two and a half years. Because I remember, I don't think I've ever told you this, my very first experience was like, meeting you, or uh, knowing who you were, was opening soon. When they filmed, oh my god, I you opened it, and that was when I was still in Australia. So before I even came to Canada, oh, that's hilarious. Before I even came to Canada, I knew who you were. Oh my god, <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, I, I refused to do that show, so I was only on it for like they yeah. had me on it just for a clip. I did not want to be doing it. Uh, my partner Brad did most of it, um, but yeah, that it, it was a hard lesson i mean towards the end of it i had to give up my apartment because there was no money left i couldn't pay rent and i'd taken over the third floor it's a construction zone and you're sleeping and i was sleeping there i brought in my mattress some clothes got a storage unit for everything else and i was just sleeping there no showers i just get up in the morning i was in pretty good shape at that point because i was forced myself to go to a gym so i could shower <laughs> I was like, I need a place to shower. Um, that was a very stressful point. Uh, my friend Chris Sheiky uh, documented it. He was going to put out a do- he, was, he filmed everything. He was going to put out a documentary on it. He did not think that it would take us two and a half years, nor did we. So at the end of it, he had over eighty hours of footage. Wow! And he just said, "I'm not. I'm not gonna." See, he just, he's like, I can't go through this. I can't go through 80 hours of editing. Maybe someday. But he's always said he figured out how he would start it in the film. Yeah. He said in the beginning, the first clip, the first day he filmed us, we were in uh, the space when it was the old butcher shop. And I was 24. There goes Kasuga now. Um, here comes Kasuga now. Here comes Kasuga now. That sounds. Here comes Kasuga now. Hi guys, DJ. Got it. I love her. She's my favorite. 
Kisses of the boys. Yeah. My God, amazing. Um, but she's got a boyfriend. She's not flirting. She's yeah. just being friendly. Um, so where, where was I? 24 oh. and yeah, 24. Yeah. He the first he was always say that if the documentary ever came out or the film, whatever you call it, there's a scene where I am full of life and I'm ready to take on the world and I'm 24 and I weighed about 210 pounds and I'm just. So ecstatic that I'm about to become a bar restaurant yeah. owner. To the end, where it was the final days of filming before we opened, and it was a 26 and a half year old who now didn't weigh 210 pounds, he weighed 160. Yeah. And my hair thinned out, and I'd just given up on everything. I was like, I don't care. We're done. It looks amazing. Who cares? Let's just get it open. Yeah. And like, we need to make money. This, it's over. Uh, Thank God we did hold on, we survived. We are very fortunate by the year, we opened in 2005, and this is before real lists existed of, you know, best bars and whatnot, but we are pretty happy. We got uh, Wallpaper Magazine out of the UK gave, gave us fifth best bar. Nice. They did a list of 100 around the world, and we got number five, which it is It was a beautiful cool. space. We really, we, I mean, we built it with our, literally with our hands. We had a construction team doing all the, like, plumbing, wiring, drywalling, but... Anything that needed to be stained, anything that needed to be wiped down, anything that needed to be sealed. We, we at one, we dug the basement out two and a half feet with our own hands and lugged it up with buckets and ropes. Oh, um, we had to change the third floor, was going to be a private lounge and bar, but we found out at the end that we were going to have to put in sprinkler system because of the requirements. City came to us and said, if you can have it 16 by 16, like a floating roof, you yeah. can forego uh, sprinkler system. Thank God, upstairs it was 16 feet wide going across. Yeah. So we stood up there with ladders and chainsaws and we cut the floor out ourselves to make it 16 by 16 and had the construction team clean it up we took the old beams because it was the beams building was built in 1898 we took the beams to a friend who built them down and made a bar top out of it for us like this is literally from the building yeah in 1898 we made our downstairs bar from it so it's like the whole way along we were incorporating things like that. We mm -hmm. really did put a lot of love and effort into it. Uh, I remember even people thought I was insane because in 2005, we built and designed the bar. Um, uh, I had hired a lot of the staff. Mm -hmm. Most of the bartenders at that time were, uh, were gals or ladies. Uh, and they were all roughly like, I remember this because of what we did. They were all like five, six, six yeah. five, seven. And we built the bar up. So they would be eye to eye with yeah. most customers that would come in, all the guys, because we knew it would be a pretty heavy uh, area for like the the business district, mm -hmm. Main Street guys. And uh, what I did was we wanted Brad wanted everything really clean. He was the designer aspect, but I was the way you know, how it runs. So we actually took the bar, built it, and I just didn't like my OCD. I don't like things on top of a bar necessarily. Yeah. So we took the ice wells and built like inserts 
for everything mm-hmm. to be hidden from the eye. And I remember, I mean, that is such a common thing now. now like companies then, doing yeah. stuff. And all the bartenders thought I was insane. Like, what's wrong with you? Like, look how efficient this is. Yeah. Like, nobody sees anything. You can pull the inserts out, clean them, like, hide them, yeah. and store it. And we just, we started, I had a great team back then. We started really looking at the game in a different way. And it grew from that over the years, where it's like, now, my God, I could go sit in the bar and the bartenders are going to teach me. Yeah. I'm very behind uh, So that's your round 27. How long was uh, that open for? We opened, I was an owner for a couple of years. We had to bring on an investor when we ended yeah. up you know, going two and a half years. That was not, that was not my tip money that yeah. I was making to do that. Long story short, the investor and Brad and I, it got a little bad. He was not a savory character, lost uh, all the money that I had to it, but say la vie, that's business. Yeah. Uh, so it was, as my father said, the most expensive five years of university anyone's ever gone to. <laughs> uh, so 2007, I left and took the little bit of money that I had to go to another space yeah. called uh, we ended up opening Harbor Group. So you literally went from Chahosky Chahosky yep. to Harbor Green. There was no oh, a little stop gap but nothing I, crazy. I went it would have been May, June uh, I went to oh, probably April, May went to a friend's wedding in Portugal with my girlfriend at the time uh, and I had not taken a vacation in literally three years. I'm not a not more than going home at the holidays to see my family. And, you know, we'd been open for almost two years, and it was, it was going well. So my girlfriend and I decided to take 30 days after this wedding in Portugal, and we just traveled on Europe. And it was one of these eye-openers. I was, like, sat around and just enjoyed life. Kind of looked and said, what am I doing with myself? I've just been chained to this bar from nine in the morning to three at night for two and a half years. This is not healthy. And how this investor treated us. And it yeah. was just it was criminal. Did you did you get a good contract with the shareholder? Like if we're talking about No, that one in particular it was, it was we it was more that we to get rid of him. I, I learned what the term grifter meant with him. Yeah. If you wanted him out of your life you had to pay him out to get rid of him. Oh. Um, and you know smart guy smarter than us a lot older than us too uh got him out but we had to bring other people in to do this so we consulted with a friend uh, who was in the bar he was a lawyer friend but he was in the bar owned a lot of bars and restaurants in toronto and he's you know we needed to come up with five hundred thousand dollars right away and uh he uh, said, I've got some guys for you. Like, they've got some cash, and they've been looking to do this. At this point, I was like, I don't care who really takes yeah. it from us, because we're going to get out of this and leave. <laughs> Should have known better, but again, I didn't care enough. Uh, he brought in some ex-Toronto police officers. And let's face it, when ex-Toronto police officers come in and have $500,000 yeah. cash... You gotta wonder where that five hundred thousand dollars cash is coming from. But again, we are like, who cares? He's paying out this investor, and we're free of this place, yeah. and we've got a fresh start. We weren't making money yeah. from it. We didn't make a penny. 
we still lost all of our money. Yeah. We lost our money, but we just needed to pay this guy to get him out. And these cops were to take over the bar. Deal's done. We end up doing a little more research just so that it'd be nosy. And these guys been on the cover of Toronto Life. They've been there still. I bet they're still in course for years, but pretty much the most corrupt cops that Canada's ever seen. These are the guys that used to go into drug dealers' homes. They would beat the hell out of the drug dealers, steal their drugs, steal their money, and then not arrest them. And, you know, it got to a point that drug dealers started pressing charges against these guys. Like, how bad do you have to be that a drug dealer is going to press charges because you kept doing this? Bad dudes. Like, you know, I probably shouldn't even say this on recording, but I don't care. Um, I've been vocal about it before, and the fact of the matter is it's the truth. So if yeah. they want to... You know, uh, it is true that can't be silent. Yeah. Uh, so, so we went on and did the harbor trip. I yeah. was like, these guys, we made the deal. These guys took it over. They changed it to like a sports bar. They did everything. I did. It was hard to watch. So I obviously never went back there. But it's not ours anymore. Yeah. It's theirs. Let them have it. And I went and did the harbor trip with uh, my business partner, Corey Vitiello and Chris Shiki. And again, we had very limited funds. Uh, at that point, I certainly was not going to be bringing on an investor. Yeah. I said, we're doing this on our own or we're not doing it. And that one, I got back from Europe and had a very different outlook on life and the, even the bar industry. Yeah. How to keep things a little more simple. And came back, it was the end of the summer, and we found this space up on Harvard Street, up in the annex, kind of up by U of T, you know, kind of in the higher end neighborhoods. Yeah. Like, all I know of Toronto is Queen Street West and yeah. like the dirty, grimy areas. I didn't know. There is actually nice this. areas out there. Yeah. But we liked this space. It was an old uh, Mexican restaurant. It was very worn down. Uh, destroyed out back. He had a big coverage where he just kept storage, garbage, rodents. It was just disgusting. But we loved the layout, what we, what we could envision. So we took it over. We took about five, maybe six months to join us. Just to put our, we, we, we didn't rebuild it from ground up, but we, we yeah. really refaced it. It was a pretty space. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it was great. It was, it was even funny, like the guy, the back patio that he used as a storage area and had a roof on it. We looked into it and it, the, the license was still legit and it was one of the last 2 a.m smoking patios in Toronto. I'm like, this is amazing. You get a 2 a.m. smoking patio in Toronto. And it's in the back of the building. Back of the building. And we were the spot that we were ended up being very busy for dinners. But no consumers thought we were open after 11 Mm o'clock. And at first, it worried us. But then we realized what happened is the bar restaurant industry caught wind of that in Toronto. Yeah. So every chef and every server that was getting off at 11 o'clock would come there knowing they'd have a 2 a.m. patio, they could smoke yeah. on and drink. They weren't being overcrowded by uh, weekend warriors. Mm-hmm. You could come there on a Friday, Saturday night and get any seat you want after midnight. And it was and really, at the end of the day, it was still like, it really was one of the first 
bars because I think Bar Chef opened up around that time too. Yeah, it opened probably a year after yeah. us. And it was it Black was, it opened was, a year after it us. It was it was the true epicenter and baseline for what happened in Toronto in the cocktail culture sense. Hey, I mean, thank you. That's very nice. I like to think that we had a pretty good hand in it. Oh, like, you can't honestly sit there and actually think that you, you didn't have a huge hand in like creating the concept culture well, in Toronto. It, let's put it this way. Step back to Chosky for a minute. 2005 is when I had been into working at different cocktail bars, but it was like blue neon yeah. drinks and juicy citrus. Like the, the, the 90s was a dark age of cocktails. But that's what yeah. I had known. And when we opened up Chosky, I mean, I couldn't Google anything at that time, or there weren't uh, there weren't blogs you could look into. You had to go find books. And yeah, I wanted to go see what cocktails were like in the 1920s when the butcher shop was new. So we ended up doing something stupid at Chosky in 2005 in the fourth largest city in North America, Toronto. You would have think this would have worked, but we made a classic cocktail list with like old fashioned Manhattan, Yucatés, yeah. you name it. Um, I was making, I found an old menu last year and I, I laughed. I was making most of them correctly, some no, but, but not, yeah, really not like, a bad attempt. Sol and I chatted about it when we sat down about like pre-internet days. Like really bartenders are uh, spoiled. The industry is spoiled now with just having a supercomputer oh in your God. pocket. Like back in the day, like you, there was, I think Drink Boy was like, Drink Boy was like the thing you go to. Yeah. It was the, the forum that you pitch up, but that was still... Yeah. You, it was, and you have to get wait to get home. You'd have to log in, <laughs> and that's and you you wouldn't want to waste the first five ten. You wouldn't want to waste ten minutes logging online and then having to search out. There was no there was no Google. Yep. Nope. Like you literally had to know where you what you were looking for in the internet that had just started becoming popular. So when you do that at Toski in two thousand five and six, two other things I did that was silly was I put local beer on top and local wine, which is. Oh, Crazy. such a no-no. The, the, the foodies that would come in would get very upset that we had local wine and beer on our list. They, and then and the cocktails were sent back because it was just straight alcohol and bitters. And people yeah. couldn't understand what we were doing. And I had to, I, as a business owner, I had to give our customers yeah. what they wanted. So we got rid of local beers. We got rid of local wines. We got rid of classic cocktails and started giving them raspberry flavored yeah. lime juicy things and, that's, and, it, and it went well now when we took over Harbor Durham when we built Harbor Durham two years later I was so gung-ho because I had fallen in love with the, yeah. the classic cocktails and craft cocktails that I was doing on my own and behind the scenes and at this point now I was traveling to New York and, yeah. and going to London and trying to see what was happening in the world of craft cocktails fell in love with it uh Went 50% craft cocktails and classic menu at Harbor Room, but then we were giving people like what they wanted. What they wanted. And what we started finding out in 2007 was people were more willing to go to your classic yeah. cocktails. Uh, they were certainly more willing to go to your. Really wailing on that They're going to keep that built up and it is going to just. There's going to be like molten lava when someone drinks that. Yeah, it's railing on it. That's a big hot note. In 2007, I, I held my ground and put on there's just so many beautiful wineries coming mm -hmm. up in, in Ontario and certainly BC. And we couldn't get a lot of that wine. 
local beers was uh, local craft beers becoming a thing at that point. And yeah, we held true with the cocktails too. And luckily, it was just the right time. It was the right time. Um, and we joke around that it was, uh, at this point now, Sex in the City was off the air yeah. and Men were on. And every guy wearing a goddamn suit and tie wanted to be Don Draper. So you'd have a lot of people come in, all <laughs> the Manhattan. And I'm like, oh, sure. Do you know what's in that? No. Great. Well, I'll make it for you anyway. But it was, I sound cheeky, but it was like, yeah, like this is our time to educate. Like you can have rye is what they were originally yeah. made with but if you'd like the softer canadian whiskey or if you'd like the sweet bourbon like yeah. here's the vermouth you have and we were learning ourselves yeah. we were totally learning ourselves we weren't totally educated on bourbon was a thing becoming a thing back mm-hmm. in 2007 but make his uh, mark manhattan's yeah make his uh, mark manhattan's make his mark manhattan's 100% you know and it was uh, being in toronto you saw a lot of canadian whiskey yeah. manhattan's but then we didn't even know enough about the different styles of canadian whiskey American Rye had not come back yet. Like, it just wasn't a thing. Uh, not in Canada, at least. But, yeah, we were very fortunate. Uh, 2007, I'd say by 2009, it was really kind of hitting and you were seeing more. That's when I first made More you. cocktail things. Do you remember? The I remember you walking in. Cause, I mean, A, when I'm six foot two and someone walks in <laughs> and is a foot taller than me, and I, was I noticed. Really, I was way skinnier. And I had a phone call. We both were, my and, friends. And I was with Brush. And that's uh, right, that's right, that's and right. I remember the drink I had. You, you brought the muddler. I did bring the muddler. And uh, I remember the drink I had was a lavender uh, sidecar. That's right. That was that was God. That would have been one of the first. And then menus. I think that was the last bar I went to because I was going to do the morning show the next day on Sea Line. Okay. I was doing Sea Line the next day, and I remember walking out and talking to my now wife. I'm like, oh, I'm just finishing having a drink. She's like, what time is it? I'm like, oh, it's like 10, 30, 11 o'clock. She's like. You better finish up and get home. There is no freaking way I we paid to be for you to go to Toronto to be on City Line and you look like a bag yeah, you look like a bag of shit on TV at six AM. She's like, So you're gonna say goodnight to Kevin Brush and you're going home. I'm like, Okay, okay dear, I'll catch a cab in a sec. And that was the first time I went to Harvard. And then and I think Bar Chef was around around there because I think I hit Bar Chef. Yep. Then I did Bar Chef, a few other ones with Brashi and then Harvard Room was my finisher. Yeah, and that was the time, like, you know, Frankie was fan. Frankie and Brent and Barstaff were fantastic, too. You know, they really helped put Toronto on an international map because they were doing things that, my God, they held on. They were doing uh, Toronto in 2007 and nine wasn't even ready for te- tequila and mezcal. They were banging like, out molecular. They were classic cocktails, yeah. and they were starting to bang out molecular. Uh, but he, they, they really helped put us on the map. You know, Jen Egg from Black Hoof. Uh, Nobody knew in 2008 when she opened what charcuterie was. Yeah. The city of Toronto, that every you can't go to a place that doesn't serve charcuterie, charcuterie now, but she really put us on the map, and she was doing really thoughtful, well-executed mm-hmm. cocktails, which is just so refreshing to see. Um, I think it goes, it goes back, because I think these days, the clientele that we have in the bars are always looking for that new thing, new, new thing, new thing. New thing thing like whatever's trending whatever's going but sticking with a mission statement and like sticking with a mission statement like in that i think that goes back to investors and that sort of thing like i've had the issues myself like you have a quiet night every place has quiet nights doesn't mean you need to change anything it's just a quiet night yeah, that's it. you know and so you can't have it all you yeah, can't have it every day you can't have, be cracking busy every time oh, well this bar this restaurant is I'm like that restaurant's been around for 25 years of course it's busy every fucking day if it wasn't busy every fucking day it would be here but even as an owner or a bar manager, sticking to your mission statement and like 
sticking to it yeah. without changing or wavering is scary as scary as hell. Oh god, yeah. It's insanely scary. Um, I did it at Clive's and same thing. Victoria never had cocktails before. Scary as hell. I had to like bang out uh, classic cocktails and tweaks and classic cocktails and stuff like that. And then they actually let us kick out. They can kick us out. Um, but yeah, so Harvard Room was successful. And then, okay, so how'd you get into Canadian whiskey? Well, at that point with Harvard Room, like you say, where the cocktail thing was um, starting to take off. And I mean, it was starting to take off. Toronto was not that far behind. Like, I mean, if you looked at LA and Chicago, they started their cocktail trends around the same time yep. as us. Because I would travel there and it was interesting. I'm like, oh, we're on the same level. Yeah. Like, it just wasn't a big thing in North America yet. Um, I was very fortunate enough, a lot of different brands or events around North America and some outside of North America, I would get invited to represent um, Canada and a few of them. And then I get going out to West and doing bar shifts with yeah. guys like yourself, gals like Danny, Danielle Tatarin and, and working with the CPBA and just, you know, getting our name out there. Instagram was not a thing. Facebook yeah. was brand new. So you literally just had to email people and go and meet everyone yeah. around. And when I started doing a lot of U.S. things, it was funny because there just wasn't a ton of Canadian bartenders going down and doing U.S. stuff. Hey, Party Shifters, just so you know, we had to change locations uh, quickly. We kicked out the coffee shop we were work, uh, interviewing in. And so uh, you'll see a little bit of a noise difference. And hopefully this noise quality is not bad. I promise you that my equipment's getting better. This is a couple of weeks old. Um, but yeah, the next section is a little bit quieter and uh, you'll understand why. It's like, let's get Star Trek <laughs> to be honest. I'm like, I just keep waiting. Beat me up, I'm waiting for you to zap yeah. me. <laughs> um, I, we've changed locations. I'm going to do a little Sean, do an edit on this one. Give, leave myself a note. Um, so I think we were talking about how did you get in from, like, you were at Harvard Room. When you took the job with J.P. Wises, you were still at Harvard Room. You were still, I was still very Harvard quite Room. active as well. I was still, you know, bartending. Yeah, I was owning and operating, but still bartending five nights a week, to be quite honest. Yeah. So it was, uh, I was just a, I loved, it was never work. I loved it. I yeah. went, I went every day and, um. I, I had a very hard time letting go of things like giving over the cocktail yeah. program to someone new. I will admit that now uh, I had a very difficult time giving it over and, and putting trust into someone. But uh, but why Canadian whiskey? That's the big thing. Well, because it, like nine times, like most like my, let's let's really talk like get down nuts and bolts. Like most brands in Canada, there's bigger brands with more budget, especially when you took on the role. Yep. Like when you took on the role. Like, we didn't have fucking Mock 40. We didn't have, like, all the cool shit you taste on things. Well, we like... did. So, because here's where it happened. I got approached by a very large gin brand that we all know today uh, to apply for the global position. Okay. The global ambassador pitched me as the, they had to pitch someone from several countries. Yeah. I was chosen from Canada. Is it a gin company that's still with you now? Or is it a different gin company? No, it's a gin company that's got cucumbers and roses and Ah, uh, yes. Uh, which was, it was such a compliment. I couldn't understand why they approached me for it because I'm like, I didn't feel like I fit the brand. I loved the gin, but just didn't feel like I fit the brand. Just so everybody knows, please Google Dave Mitten and you'll see pictures of him in denim and denim and denim and like... And then some and, more denim and, and some more beards. denim and beards. And he didn't actually, this is not his persona... Full Canadian whiskey. It's just Dave Mitten. 
So he wore denim before he had to wear denim, like as a job description. <laughs> that's, that's how, it, this is kind of the joke. Clad in denim. This, so this gin company approached me and I was just intrigued enough by the process and they convinced me to go through the interview process. Apparently I made it kind of down to the end of what I was told, but it was a different gentleman got the job and he was the man cut out for the job and yeah. I don't yeah, know I if he still does it. As well, uh, like being a brand ambassador in Canada. It wasn't a was thing. We're still a freaking alien yeah, thing. Like it was we don't, not a we, thing. And we have brand ambassadors in Canada. We still really. I think we have Jameson ambassadors yeah. kicking around. And the great, the grand scheme of things, you still don't have many brand ambassadors say it's like the US. Yeah. US was Canada. We still don't have that many brand ambassadors compared to now. Exactly. So it was one of these weird things. At the exact same time, Lot 40 had just kind of been out for two years. Yeah. And it was my house whiskey, and I was just flying through it uh, for a very small bar and restaurant. Long story short, word got out when I had applied for this gin role as a global ambassador because everyone was like, this is crazy. He owns a few bars yeah. and restaurants. And, and, and a lot of people agreed the, the brand did not suit me necessarily. Yeah. So it made people talk where I ended up having, uh, in a very nice complimentary way, a few other brands started reaching out to me going, we had no idea you were into doing ambassador work. <laughs> um, and Corby Spirit and Wine, Pernod Ricard, uh, literally came into my bar and said, what is going on? Like, uh, it said, well, you know, I just wanted to go through the process. I'm not really sure if I'm going to do it. You know, see what it's like. And they said, can we, can we pitch you on something? Yeah, of course. Uh, they came in, maybe two weeks later, we set up a sit down. And as you just said, there were no ambassador roles yet in Canada. Um, Pernod Ricard certainly had ambassador roles for their Irish and Scottish whiskeys, but there had been nothing for Canadian. Um, so they pitched me. They said, we want to create the role of Canadian whiskey ambassador. I said, you know, your first year, you'll probably look after Canada. Second year, you'll do North America. We're looking to build up to global and build a small little army. And that's exactly what happened. It's, it'll be five years uh, this June, but I spent the first year spent the first two years doing North America and the last two and a half years has been everything outside of Canada. Well, you've done, did you do Singapore? No, no, no Asian countries yet. Not yet? We, when I started, it was two countries, Canada and US, and now we are in 16 countries around the world. She's Australia a little while ago. We're in Australia, well, I mean, Canada, US, Australia, Germany. Uh, England, Scotland, uh, Holland, Finland, Sweden, Estonia, Lithuania, France, and did I say Sweden? Another yeah. European yeah. country. And I just can't think of it. That's right crazy. Now. It's like in, in less than five years, we've hit 13 other countries. And it's, uh, I can't say for sure, because I just can't say it, it's not finalized. We've got a long list of countries, like a very long list of countries around the world that have pitched us because essentially the way we do it is we would love to be sold everywhere, but some, every country has got to have a yeah. plan on how they're going to Korean import that's becoming popular, like Japanese whiskey yeah, blowing we, up a couple of years ago. Had to, like everybody like scramble to figure out, oh, oh Japanese whiskey, Yamakaz, yeah, Yamazaki won whiskey of the year. Now every country's scrambling to figure out how can I bring in Yamakaz, Yamazaki exactly. for it. And you know, the last thing you want to do is selling your product to someone and then it just sit on shelves yeah. like it's just that's not a good look um, and, and you so 
I think the big thing is like for brand ambassadorship, a lot of kids see it as like it is a natural progression for brand ambassadorship. I'd love to do it um, eventually, um, but the thing is, you really have to champion a brand or category. I find the best brand ambassadors, like go around. I found the best brand ambassadors are champions for the product before the product is cool. Like you look at Raj and Simon for Jim. Like they were championing the brands before they were cool. Absolutely. And I've known Raj since like nineteen, maybe nineteen ninety nine, two thousand, like when he first started with Bombay yeah. in Australia. Um, and you completely find the brand ambassadors who aren't really champions of the brand. They just got off the gig because their bar sold the whole track load. And back, and to be really honest, like we look back now, like we talked what, five years ago. Canadian whiskey was it's it's still I find every year that like, we meet up one like once or twice a year we meet up. Every year it's easier because I love my Canadian whiskey. I always might have been a big fan of it for a long time. Every year it's like oh those this year's been a little bit easier. More people are asking for it like. Lot 40, the 12 year old car oh, strength, the, the difference. The difference in five years ago coming to the US, I mean, here's how I explained it. I would, I'd, I'd come down, and part of the gig was I was doing so many cocktail things in the US before that uh, Corby and Pernod Ricard felt it a natural fit. It's, well, you know, so many bartenders in the US that, you know, it might be a bit of a foot in the door in a place yeah. that's trying to get Canadian whiskey in. And it, and it certainly was to some point. Um, but I would come down to the US five years ago and everyone you know it's like you'd go to a bar and everyone would have a little run at you and be like oh how's she going eh it's like and, you know some kind of a some kind of a joke about how canada was uh, america's hat and you know they, they just make some cracks about canadian whiskey and, and you know it was all in fun and in jest but now five years later there's just been a shift where you come down and uh, there's certainly still a lot of misconceptions and false truths yeah. about Canadian whiskey, but Canada in a whole, you come down and everyone starts going on. They're like, oh, your actors, Ryan Gosling, Ryan, Ryan uh, yeah. Reynolds, you know, they're like your sports teams, the Raptors, your handsome prime minister. <laughs> like, so many things about Canada has become cool, yeah. and even the whiskey. Like, yeah. everyone's been uh, very excited watching what different brands. I think, I, do. I think also the transparency that's come in Canadian whiskey in the last few years as well. The transparency has definitely helped. Like the oh. honesty of the like the, the blending post aging, all that sort of stuff. Um, education, think, education, yeah. education. And like I remember my, my funniest one is going to a bar in Vancouver and ha- they had no Canadian whiskey and they dog Canadian whiskey. I'm not going to tell you which bar. I'll tell you yeah, which bar enough. after the mic yeah. is off. But they would dog Canadian whiskey. Sorry, folks. <laughs> They would dog Canadian whiskey. Never know. And then they would have whistle pig on the back bar. Yeah, that's my favorite. <laughs> like, oh, Canadian whiskey's rubbish. I'm like, but you're charging 16 bucks for whistle pig. Like, have you read anything? Like, you have a supercomputer on your in your phone. Like, do not look at it while you're watching, like, reading coffee. Like, there is so much American, dis- like, a Canadian distillate being palmed off as yeah, American. Yeah, re-bottled and re-bottled and... And being American. I'm like, you're fucking idiots. Like, truly, like, you're just not doing your research. But I do think, like, the transparency from Dr. Don and before that, like, John Paul from 40 Creek, like, yep. it's just, 
I think that's always things because we like the articles. I think we were talking about Wayne Collins writing an article about like that zero point zero one percent being orange juice or like stewed plums. And- yeah, unfortunately, the one thing I when I started this gig was I was reading articles from some of the most renowned whiskey writers in the world, and it was blowing me away that they were absolutely one hundred percent incorrect yeah. in. Their information on like Canadian whiskey. Flavored vodka or like, like this is barrel crazy. Aged vodka. Bar- it was barrel aged vodka. It was like they just decided to make up all the bad rumors. Sorry, I, I'm so frustrated right now. I, I forgot <laughs> how to speak. But yeah, they would just take notions and things that they had heard or read and they wrote it down in their own book or article saying that's the fact. And when it's completely misleading and untrue, like, it just blows me away. It's changing now. But again, and like Davin years ago told me a story, like, and again, I won't tell which distillery this yeah. was, but he booked a distillery tour, like, because it was just before his first book dropped. Um, and for everybody at home, Davin is like the pre- preeminent, I think the only person yeah. that probably knows more about Canadian whiskey is Doc Don. Yeah. Um, That's fair. And he, he went and stayed for a week in this town, mm-hmm. went to the distillery. He had it booked for a tour, and he eventually never got in. Kidding me. And that's where that sort of secret of like non-transparency, oh, like what do you do to our Canadian our whiskey? There's no question that it's it's can it's Canada, the brands in Canada. It's it's their fault. It's it's, yeah. it's been all of our faults for not being transparent and not offering education. Yeah, hundred percent. Even then, you look at Canadian whiskey, uh, not Canadian whiskey, uh, like bourbon, and a lot of bourbon brand ambassadors never talk about the first run through a pot to sort of clean up the the corn spirit before it goes through the pot. It's always, it's very interesting. Like some things get romanticized, other things not so much. Like I think the transparency has changed the way people perceive Canadian whiskey, and I am beyond blown away with like just with how expansive your brands, like the the JP Wise's portfolios become. Yeah, um, the rare cask series. And oh, just and just the beautiful northern, northern, northern collections, northern, northern border, northern border collection. Um, all that stuff has just blown my mind because it repli- like shows the older clean whiskeys and stuff like that, the 15, the 22s, the 40 year olds, stuff like that. And I feel like the age thing is fine. I feel like everybody's trying to one up each other for how yeah. the oldest thing is. <laughs> well, and I will say that I think it's I I, I, I haven't seen in the warehouses of other um, uh, brands, but you know, a 35 year old or a 40 or a 41 year old that's about as old as it gets yeah. for Canadian whiskey right now unless yeah. someone's got some so interesting things it. hidden which I just don't know who it would be yeah. in the game at this point well I think that's where like 40 Creek kids really like shone because that's how they got caught for so much from yeah. Campari is because like John Hall was making whiskey when nobody was thinking about it for he, get, he 100% gets the credit of uh, changing the game in the mid 90s yeah. And he just, he just put down whiskey after whiskey. Like, never, again, goes back to that mission statement from before. He's like, I'm going to make freaking great Canadian whiskey. I know that nobody wants this right now. <laughs> like, they used to, like, the, the Crown Royals and the, the entry-level yep. stuff. He's like, I'm going to make whiskey. And I think that in 20, 30 years, people are going to want it. And does it like He's not wrong. And, you know, Don, uh, when when uh, John, well, Don started doing it before John retired. But when John retired, I think Don was 
I'm comfortable to say that he took on the mantle oh, as sure. the most innovative Canadian whiskey maker out there. But it, it goes back to that, like, using the rules for good, not evil. I always yeah. joke about that because, like, we, the rule, we, we have limited rules in Canada. It's not like Irish whiskey. Or, like, I always love about Scotch whiskey distillers. Can you maybe be a new distiller and showing up and you're young and bristly and brushing, like, you're ready to rock and roll? And they're like, no, here's the book. This is what this you is, do. This is, this is what you do. Yep. This is how we do it. Oh, but I've got some ideas. Nope, this is how we do it. Whereas I think Don, like you said, oh. while we were just having drinks with Jordan from Westwood, there's like 80 whiskeys. Some are good, some are bad. But he just tries everything because he can. There's no rules, rhyme or reason, like a couple of age rules, and that's pretty much it at the end of the day. That's great. Um, so I know you have to get stuck getting ready for dinner, so I'm gonna, we're going to try this. Favorite city to visit? Favorite city to visit? Oh do you have one? God. That's like asking my favorite song or movie. Um, this um sorry ask me again <laughs> favorite city to visit my favorite city to visit i've got to say the last five years i have just you travel a lot i travel a lot i mean first thing that comes to mind is i have completely fallen in love with detroit it is unbelievable how resilient that city is over the last few decades like you go to detroit now and I mean, everyone has this opinion of Detroit. Like, yeah. oh, it's a, it's a scary city. You're gonna get you're gonna get mugged or shot. Um, it is. I've met um, some bartenders from there, and they're just like, because of the hardships, they, there's literally zero fucks given. It, they're it, like, I'm gonna do what I want to do because we've come from a bad, a really bad place as a city. Nothing I do now is gonna get any do any worse than that. It's it's unrecognizable from what it was five years ago. These young, talented men and women in the industry have taken these old time capsules of buildings, which are pieces of art in themselves, and they're putting in stunning kitchens and bars and just creating a scene that's unlike anything else. But then on top of that is Detroit. I mean, it's the home of Motown and techno. The music scene there is ridiculous. Uh, the art, the, the murals, like there's no city in North America that has an art scene like this. There, there's just something completely raw and magical about it. I've, I've heard comparisons, I mean, you do not say this to a Detroiter, but when I bring bartenders from around the world or America, they're like, oh, it's, it's Brooklyn 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And it's not. There's a reason it's Detroit versus everybody. They, you don't compare them, but it is that raw grittiness and just there's so much passion. There is so much passion and talent in Detroit now. And let's face it, I love the history that Detroit yeah. and Hiram Walker Distillery oh, yeah. has. Yeah. That was the city where... That whole triangle of Windsor, Detroit, Hiram Walker, that whole area is just... During Prohibition, that's where the whiskey was being... I mean, grab some scuba gear, go to the bottom of that river and see... There'd probably be some pretty interesting things sitting at the bottom of that it. That would be awesome. Maybe that, that that's a that's a trip. There, there's you, you, there's you, an influencer you, you, trip. Yeah, Everyone's you, you, going scuba diving. <laughs> um, for bartenders wanting to become brand ambassadors, uh, what a point is when you become a brand ambassador? Because I know that well, we talked about we talk about mental health and issue pretty openly now. Mm-hmm. And really, as a brand ambassador, you've got to balance like, and a lot of people don't know this. It's pretty hard for like sales, marketing figures, like brand activations, like really doing the punching the it, numbers and organizing logistics. But then you've also got like you have to go out and drink, yeah, and and be seen and like touch tables, kiss babies, that sort of thing. You, I mean, when I did take this, I, I 
thinking, oh, this would be this will be interesting. Instead of running my own, we were running two restaurants at the time, working full bar shifts, but being there in the morning to do inventory, place orders, receive things all day, deal with staffing, reservations, scheduling, and before you know it, you've put eight hours in, but now you've got to set up your bar and then work a, another 10-hour shift from the home and do it all. It was tough. Anyone knows that that owns and operates bars. I thought I'd be coming into Easy Street to yeah. be really frank with this. I'm like, oh, I got to take people out for dinner and some yeah. drinks, and then I'm going to put a brand. Ford makes it look so easy. Oh, it does make it look easy, <laughs> but I, you know, anyone that knows who does it, it is. It's you're not breaking rocks or lifting heavy boxes. It's not hard work in that sense, but you are going from very early mornings because. Everyone you're having a meeting with doesn't yeah. see a reason why you can't have meetings at and, eight, nine yeah. in the morning. Um, a lot of pressure because uh, you, the, the, my ambassador role at least has a lot to do with sales. You know, you're out spending a lot of money, but you someone else's money, is, but you've yeah. got to show results of, yeah. of why you're spending this money. Uh, the activations that we do across the world. I'm closely involved with all marketing from each country on these activations and the design teams. Uh, I'm very fortunate that I get to work with the brand and innovation team on different expressions and, and everything based around it. Uh, the whiskeys in that way. Work with marketing. You do as, as the, at least as the global brand ambassador, you kind of have your hand in all aspects of yeah. the business it was very full on and yeah you travel constantly last year um, I did close to 120 flights in 12 months and um, it's the balance you, you, you've got to be very careful when it comes to your health and well-being yeah. you know literally you need to try to get some kind of exercise in every day at least I do as a, as a bit of an older guy You've got to watch what you eat. Yeah. You've got to watch your alcohol consumption because it is. It's a slippery slope. It's very easy to get into a position where you're with you an hour ago. We are having a drink and catching up. And I could have easily had one or two more. And all of a sudden, you and I would probably be four or five drinks in. And it's not even 7 o'clock. So you have to be mindful with that. I think the most difficult thing... And again, it's just quality of life. Is you have to be on twenty four seven for the most part. It's like when you're a bartender. Once you step behind the, that wood, you switched on. You you know your problems don't matter. You're yeah. have everyone you're entertaining and, and taking care of all evening. You're just having the best time mm -hmm. ever. And that's the same as me. No matter how bad of a day you're having, no matter how ill you're feeling, yeah. no matter how jet lagged or if you get pneumonia, well, that's a little extreme, but you're, 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 you're the life of the show. And I, I suppose that goes to my next, the last question, because I'm going to tie this off. Yeah. Um, you went through a rough patch the last two years. We talked about um, the first buy you had and you, the shady shit that went on there. And you paid for that. Was that, uh, was it taxes? Was it taxes? It was what it was when we were talking about the uh, corrupt coughs who ended yeah. up buying Tosky. Uh, as you say, I removed myself as much as I could, and it was 10 years completely removed and not thinking of this space or business. 
um, got home from Tales of the Cocktail in New Orleans one year, and there was a, two letters in the mail, one from Ministry of Labor and one from CRA Canada and uh, Canada Revenue Agency, for you, those of you that don't know. <laughs> And one letter said I owed $1 million in unpaid taxes. And one letter said I owed $35,000 in unpaid wages. Uh, right away, I said, this is in my mind, I'm like, oh, it's a complete, complete mistake. Different Dave Mitten um, or different business. And it was just something horrible. I was thinking the Harbinger. Like, yeah. I owned a bar then. It was the Harbinger. Called my business partner. What the hell do I have this letter for in my hand? He, he laughed. He goes, it's not us, um, which I knew it wasn't. I read off the business number, and he goes, that's not even our business number. I was like, okay, I'll just call. I'll call these guys and get it straightened out. And I had this moment. There's no way. It's been a decade. There's no way this is Chahosky. And I go to a storage unit, pull out some old files. I look, and I'm like, sure enough, it's Chahosky's business number. Then I've got a horrible feeling in my stomach. Long story short, uh, get a legal team, call CRA, call Ministry of Labor. We still to this day don't know how it was exactly done, but the ex-cops put my name back on as the director of the company. And again, we it was two and a half years of legal battles. We don't know how it literally happened because... There is no signature on my end, but I've learned this. Getting your name off as a director once you owe that money is almost impossible. Uh, so, yeah, I'll, to be completely transparent, the Canadian government, the Ministry of Labor, garnished my wages to get that money for the unpaid employees that I'd never met before. No idea. Um, and they were coming after me hard about the million dollars in unpaid taxes to the point that they um, were threatening jail time um, and I was trying to get to court dates while trying to travel around the world selling Canadian that, whiskey it, 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 it was a time when you went global it you was right global when I went global and, so I, and you're fucking flying out to I'm flying out everywhere. and some days I'd have to pay my lawyer and his team to go in without me which was an extra cost or if I could be there which I wanted to be because I'm trying to look these judges yeah. in the eye and explain to them that this is not me. And it got to the point where the judges, like, part of the evidence was like, here's magazine covers of these yeah. corrupt cops who, you know, are in court now and might go to jail the rest of their lives. What do you think would happen if they owned a bar? Like, they're trying to screw me so over. Um, so we eventually got down to it where two and a half years of me going through this hell I don't get me wrong, I know a lot of people go through worse than that, but it was kind of a financial stressful hell. If I went to jail, my life would have yeah. been a little over. This job certainly would have been. Um, so luckily, uh, lawyers helped bring out the truth, and you know, my name was cleared with the Canadian government, but you try asking the Canadian government yeah. to give you the money back. Yeah. And they didn't, so I figure I'm owed some pretty good karma that these staff, these men and women I've never met before that were ripped off and not paid. At least someone had to pay them, even though I've never met them, I've paid their salaries. But really, the day it goes back to what you were saying, it's like, a, like you were going through all that shit, 
and I only found out that last Whiskey Fest we yep. had. And you launched Lot 40 and Canadian Whiskey and JP Wise's globally. Yeah. Going through all this. And you've got to smile the whole time. And you've got to smile the whole time. And, and that's not a story you tell people. Nobody wants to hear yeah, that. Get, that's not an enjoyable... Lawyers, you're like, uh, fuck, that you didn't have a good day in, the, in court. Great. I'm going to go do it. Uh, whiskey, uh, whiskey tasting now. Yeah, a big smile on my face. And I'm going to convince everyone how happy Canadian whiskey makes you when you drink it. Um, <laughs> uh, trust me, that was hard too. Try not, you know, you wanted to have an oh, extra just, shot just, or two yeah, of that. Just after. to take off the edge. Yeah. But okay. uh, Last question. Of course. One piece of advice for bartenders today. Just a life piece of advice. Life piece of advice. Take care of yourself. Um, I wish, I mean, it's a thing now. I wish 20 years ago when I started bartending, we didn't really have mentors yep. in Canada. I wish somebody would have told me to take it a little easier, maybe not work as many hours, maybe not work as many shifts, certainly hold back on everything bad that you're putting into your body. Yeah. You know, wear better shoes. You know, just take care of stretch. yourself. Little little bounce, stretch. Um, you know, I haven't been a true bartender for a few years now, but you you can feel you can feel some of the damage oh, dude, that you've done. Yeah, we're about the same age, and there's days like I don't do bartending too often myself anymore. Like a couple of night shifts here and there, and I wake up the next morning and then might feel like pins, pins and needles. Yeah, I I think of myself getting off pretty easily. I don't really have any issues. Um, got some good friends who are my age and treated themselves the way I did, but they've got some, uh, you know, they don't drink knees, anymore knees. and they've got some bad knees and elbows and their insides aren't as great as they used to be. <laughs> we were kind of the last generation of that, like, hardy, hard yeah. bartender. Well, like, God, and, it was, and it was that oh definitely toxic, uh, I would say toxic masculinity of like, yep. how many hours did you work last year? Eight. Oh, God, Pussy. yeah. It was, yeah, it was on, oh, I, put in 18 a day and it's you know yeah when i had that when i owned and operated those bars we were there that long it was not because we were trying to prove anyone less of a worker because we needed to we couldn't afford to pay the people so we had to do it but we definitely worked harder instead of smarter yeah we Um, definitely worked harder instead of smarter but okay i'm gonna let you get ready for dinner thanks for having me thank you i think we really could have fucking just never (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to do part two next year.